HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more at robertaspizza.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're telling the stories behind iconic dishes. We learn what it will take to save New York's most famous egg cream, discover the importance of the goat neck in the East Village, and take a trip to India for delicious flatbreads. Our customers who come in to get egg creams and t-shirts, they love to talk about their childhood or their teenage years or their college years. I was living in uh, Nepal in northern India. And out there, there's a real famous dish, a classic dish, I should say. It's called paya. Parathe wali gali, or as it awkwardly translates in English, the lane of the stuffed flatbread makers, is probably one of the most popular food streets in Old Delhi. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. Good evening, and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food, policy, and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and we're broadcasting from Roberta's on Heritage Radio Network. So the local food market in the U.S. has grown from $5 billion in 2008 to $12 billion in 2014, and this year it's expected to reach $20 billion, according to Packaged Facts, the market research firm. Yet, according to Foodshed.io co-founder and CEO Dan Beckman, the current food system is ill-equipped to handle the continued growth and demand. And his company is on a mission to change that. Dan joins me in the studio today to tell us more about his company, Foodshed.io, is doing just that. Welcome to the show, Dan. Thanks for having us. We've been wanting to be on this for a really long time. Yes. So. Well, we're ha- so happy to have you. Okay, so briefly, what is Foodshed.io? It's, uh, well... It's foodshed.io. It's a website. That's true. And what does the IO stand for? You get to it. I actually think about it in terms of generations of startups. For a while, it was .ly and everything was like .ly. Now it's .io because you want to get foodshed as the address. (laughs) And .io is some island nation somewhere (laughs) that uh, also stands for I and O, which is on and off for a computer. So there's a lot of present generation tech companies that have a .io address. So you're just trendy. 
Yes, I guess it. <laughs> and there's a matter of convenience there as well. <laughs> okay, so briefly, what is it besides having a fabulous website name? Well, uh, if you want to make local food possible, I'll explain a little bit about what that is, but available to everybody, there isn't any way to move that food right now. And most of the people that are growing local food, not in an industrialized way and in a regenerative way that we could do for the rest of time, are more independent farmers. Some of them are smaller, some of them are bigger. Um, but right now, the way that we move food is basically uh, geared towards moving massive amounts of food that often is picked before it's ripe so it can make the trip. And it's designed in such a way that it can last as long on the shelf as possible. Uh, in the case of New York and other places east of the Rocky Mountains, it's designed to come from California and from other places beyond as we're entering winter time. Mm -hmm. And you have a lot of natural, we can't really fight these things, trade-offs when you have food that's designed this way. It generally has less flavor and it generally has less nutritional value. Mm -hmm. You just hit all of the talking points of my uh, previous company, Our Harvest. Which yes, well, you know this more than I, I do. do. Yes, I do, except we were a little different um, and we were direct to consumer. And so you work mostly with, so it's, so it's an app, right? It's a marketing and logistics app? Yeah, I mean, we get a little bit more involved. So if you think about major retailers, and most people are still getting their produce at a place that your grandmother shopped at. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know. Is this a national audience? Is it safe to assume that? International. International. We're a really big deal. Okay. Well, then maybe place. these are well-known American grocers. Uh, Kroger is mm -hmm. a place. There are 3,500 Krogers across the United States. They sell a lot of produce. So if you think about a place like that, and then there are ones like this throughout the United States, they aren't set up to deal with the complicated nature of lots of farms that are growing these things that are seasonal and nearby. They're set up to move the massive amounts of food. Right, in smaller farms. Yeah, yeah. So if you want to make local food available to everybody, mm -hmm. it's good to work with these places or figure out a way to get in there because that's where most people are buying their food. But to your point, food retailers are very important and there's a lot of different ways to do this. Mm -hmm. We are more what people would refer to as B2B or wholesale. Mm -hmm. So a lot of places, one good company that's out there that maybe some people have heard of is a place called Good Eggs. Mm -hmm. uh, they're based in San Francisco. Uh, they they're more of a digital version of a grocery store that delivers direct to consumers. We can work with places like that. And yeah. I imagine there will be a lot more of those to come. I think it's the beginning, not the end of it. And our harvest, which is the New Absolutely. York version, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so you are going to, so so how, so your, the goal of foodshed.io <laughs> is, um, is to solve for inefficiencies in local food distribution. Is that right? Yeah. And so how exactly are you guys going about doing this? Well, you know, you have to think about why is this the way that it is? And if you have 300 farms and they're all trying to go into the same place, mm -hmm. into the same store or into the same restaurant chain or wholesaler or whatever it is, it's really hard for them to all have meetings both ways. Uh, can farmers actually meet with all these places? Can uh, these chains actually meet with everybody? And the answer has been no. Um, just even beginning to start to figure out how to do this is not something that 
is easy yeah. um, from both sides of that. But then it gets into how are we getting it into town? And there's ways that you can share existing resources that we have right now that have not been digitized in any way uh, that can reduce costs and have farmers think more about what they're growing mm-hmm. and have retailers think about how to sell it. Okay. So a lot of this stuff in the middle is going to be there. We're not going to remove or replace all of it. But in order to make this a reality at all, where you have kind of like a farmer's market section of a grocery store, mm-hmm. there has to be a new way of doing it that deals with the fact that it's very fragmented, very small producers, big producers, and they all have to somehow fit into this system that's not designed for them. So the current system is like a bunch of retailers working with large farms who, I mean, first of all, we don't have a ton of small family farms producing vegetables specifically in this country, right? Um, There's more than you might think, and we want to keep the ones we have. Yeah. Uh, There are people who want to get into it. And then there's also uh, hydro farms. Right. Well, that's a whole other... That's a whole other can of worms. But so you have these, so it's like fragmented, smaller family, you know, smaller producers who are trying to want to sell to bigger re- uh, re- retailers. Mm-hmm. But the current system is designed for like major farms, like, I don't know, like a Driscoll's or something, mm-hmm. um, for them to source, you know, for retailers to kind of source from them. How does it typically work? I mean, there's a lot of steps b- between the Driscoll's of the world and the Kroger, you know, getting it to Kroger. What does the current system look like? Um, Obviously, uh, everybody has their own deals and arrangements, so it's not all the same, exactly the same. But generally, um, there are distribution centers. And in the case of Driscoll's, what they might do is, um, it depends on how the relationship works, but the grocer might actually drive a big semi or contract this out and literally bring a semi filled with those strawberries to their distribution center uh, every week. Okay. And that's it. And then from there. And well, Driscoll's on their side, they actually are bringing in farms that they contract with that they have an immense amount of control over. Mm -hmm. And uh, they're doing the logistics on that side in order to bring it to a place where it can be uniform and go to different places throughout the country. Like it's packaged at the distribution centers? Oftentimes uh, it's packaged at Driscoll's and um, distribution centers for retailers often are just warehouses. Mm-hmm. And their goal in those places are to keep the smallest amount that they can for the shortest amount of time, but they ob- obviously never want to run out. So that's kind of the game that they're playing. Right, right. Which leads to waste inevitably they're always going to like oversupply yeah i mean i think there's some room for improvement there but if you think about it may in some cases if they're buying it from a a, another distributor they're not buying it direct then there's another stop between them and and where it comes from um Mm -hmm. so yeah there's a lot of stops my understanding is typically and you're what you're trying to do with this technology is um you know delete the middleman um you know this system that we have, a lot of people like want to burn it all down or whatever. I don't, it's a miracle that we have all of these things in the store and you can get it, get it there. And generally speaking, it's always there. I mean, people are almost uh, disconnected from nature. The bananas that we have are in danger all the time of becoming extinct. And these are the ones that we know. The Cavendish banana, because there's only one varietal, one Apparently. variety. Yeah. I'm not an expert on that, but you know, I, I hear about it yet. 
we still keep seeing it. The prices I just saw today at Wegmans, it was 49 cents a pound. So like yeah. clearly that's dialed in for now. Yeah. I We are not in uh, Missouri and even in New York and in most places, we're not going to be having local oranges. Um, we're not well. going to be having local bananas. And so there are some seasonality things here. There are also, um, you know, just things in terms of nature about what we're going to be able to grow and mm-hmm. what we can provide locally. So the fact that there's this stable system that's still doing it, we're not going to destroy that. And I honestly think that I don't think they should be threatened by us. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, whenever there is something that's seasonal that is on display at any of these grocery stores, especially the ones we've worked with, they drive sales throughout the whole store. This is an attraction. and. Right. I like to say this. I don't think you need to know how to read uh, to be a customer of ours. I mean, if you're a retailer, you probably have to read one of our contracts. (laughs) But if you're a consumer, a person who buys food, if you try our stuff, which is I'm saying our, but farmers grew it. And, Mm -hmm. you know, they were the ones that actually did all the work. um, It tastes better and you'll remember it. Yeah. And I think everybody out there probably remembers a time they had, I hope, some good produce out there. Yeah. You never forget where it came from. So this is a kind of thing where I think a lot of people try to say, we need to educate people and all of this. Um, sometimes you educate people and you tell them this is local or this is that in a complicated menu of all these things. And then they don't think it's for them. They think it's expensive. And so right. we want to make produce and food accessible. Everybody has to eat. Mm-hmm. So. So you don't have a background in food, right? <laughs> no. What is your background in? I have a news and politics background, which are two of the most hated industries in the country. Not to me. Uh, <laughs> well, good. <laughs> well, right uh, now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, I don't think people trust the news right now. And I think politics is not working for the people. Um, no matter who you like or who you vote for, you have some sense or feeling that this is not working for you. And so I worked in both of those areas. And I think the reason that it is helpful in this space is that a lot of these farms have a hard time uh, advocating for themselves. Mm -hmm. We have a dicamba drift problem that will probably knock out one in 10 farms this year in Missouri and Illinois that grow vegetables or crops will be destroyed indiscriminately. What is a dicamba drift problem? It is a new uh, herbicide that when it gets hot uh, at certain parts of the summer, and obviously don't sue Heritage Radio or me on the basis of this, <laughs> this is widely accepted science. Mm-hmm. It drifts into the sky and up to five miles, it can drop down and kill your trees in you know the town square. It can kill somebody's garden. And then yes, it can wipe out an entire potato farm. And Ugh. you know, People don't survive things like that. And we're trying to do a local food movement, everybody. And this sort of thing is pretty upsetting. So um, there are guidelines that can be used where this stuff is sprayed in a way that is more considerate that need to be enforced. Yeah. <laughs> and then I I just imagine this is like a roadrunner situation where in time, because this is pretty horrible, it will catch up and this kind of practice will either be stopped or they'll have to have a new formulation because you can't just kill somebody's livelihood like that and there's no recourse. And right now it's kind of a situation where they're trying to blame whoever sprayed it and they're not enforcing the laws on the book. So 
let's start by enforcing what's there. But that's a good example where I understand politics a little bit and I can maybe get some different people together that are going to say, you know, farmers have been talking about this for two years since it's been an issue. Mm -hmm. They clearly need some other people involved that have an interest in this sort of thing uh, that can help at least get the laws enforced that are on the books. Yeah. Um, If anybody looks it up on Google, you'll see that this is a very new problem. uh, And it's also one that we should all be concerned with. We even if we wanted to use GMOs, (laughs) there Mm -hmm. aren't GMOs for the kinds of vegetables that we're growing. And you know, you can't just go over and kill. Like, like, could you imagine that? Like in any no. other business where you just smash somebody's entire business? Yeah, thing no, no, it, that's an, um, it's a very great point. And I thank you for telling us about that because that's like a recent horror I have not covered. So Sorry to give everybody no. another one out there. I, <laughs> yeah. I really oh God, I want to have less of them but, too. Yeah. But. So, okay, so you really leverage your background in journalism and politics to help organize for these farmers basically? Well, I mean, the other thing is we can do a documentary on this. So people don't know about this right now. It's new. We know how to do that. And we also know how to get it distributed. So we want to be careful about it because, um, you know, there's a lot of interest involved in anything. And I don't want to put out something there that's completely untrue. But I've seen the fields and I've seen things that have been killed. And there's been, you know, reports that come back that show that dicamba is involved. So... We just have to do a good journalistic work if we're going to put it out there. And, you know, that's one of the reasons why I think people um, you may want to turn on the spicy story that, that they're putting out in front of you. But well-researched journalism takes time um, and you don't always get an aha at the end of it. So yeah. uh, I, when I'm doing it, I want to make sure that it's accurate. So how does that relate to your current work? Necessarily? Well, um, you know. I've worked with filmmakers to get their videos and their documentaries and whatever it is distributed. And I was director of supporter generated video for um, the Obama campaign in 2008. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, and believe me, everybody, I am I'm an independent person. So we work with all sorts of different types of farmers and different types of people. And I, I grew up in Ohio and I try to treat everybody the same. And thankfully, they've been very welcoming of me, no matter what their political beliefs are, because this is something where we can work together. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's strange. Filmmakers go out there and do something creative and it takes time for them to do it. And they have a hard time often getting access to distribution. Uh, farmers also do the same thing. And I, I don't know if it's like uh, I, I, I don't know if they want to be known as artists, but in the specialty produce category, um, there are people that have had generations of knowledge built up about how they're growing tomatoes mm-hmm. um, or how they're growing whatever it is in the climate that they live in and the land that they have lived on. And so it's not much different. Um, it, even videos and films, they spoil. You got to get those out fast enough. I mean, the Irishman's having a little trouble right now. Um, so people are disappointed they can't get in to see it. So <laughs> this is a similar thing somehow. And what I can bring to this is a new perspective because, you know, I don't mean to shock everybody out there, but like I eat at McDonald's. I also uh, grew up in Toledo, Ohio. I was convinced we were the fourth place in Ohio to get produce. <laughs> we had like green and red apples, orange, oranges and bananas. And it seemed like that was about it. Yeah. So I've lived and grew up in one of these communities where it seemed like fun fruits was 
a vegetable or a fruit, depending upon whatever you want there. And so I can identify with this crowd. And honestly, uh, it's just not available in these places. If you have good stuff like they have out in California, yeah. where people are eating produce like candy, they're going to eat more of this stuff. It's a problem of access. And it's not just in terms of the socioeconomic situation. I would argue that even at some of the finer retailers in the Midwest, they're not... Their local produce is from USA. Right. <laughs> just you can pretty see general. It. Yeah. So why... So you are not a... You know, the food space is relatively newer. This was your first venture into food, right? Yeah, but, you know, Tom and Claire, who I've known for 20 years now... Are uh, they your co-founders? They're my co... This is their idea. Yep. And Tom has worked on in agriculture his whole life. Claire has worked in supply chains throughout the world on behalf of the Earth Institute. I believe she's been on this radio station. Mm -hmm. um, they have a lot of knowledge and how to do this stuff. And I've learned a lot from them and they've opened up the world to me. Um, the other fourth co-founder that we have is somebody named Liz Thorpe, who is a world-renowned cheese expert. She worked for Murray's Cheese here yeah. in New York and they sold into Kroger. Um, they now, you can get their cheese, uh, cheese from all over the world, mm -hmm. um, and Kroger's across the country. And so she has a model that she's developed where basically she's making cheese accessible to people. There is like a three or $4 box that you can go to in Toledo, Ohio at Kroger, where you can get cheese from around the world that's yeah. affordable. And right. so she's helped us a lot in terms of understanding how we can actually pull this off. Right. Okay. So what, it, how do you, how does it actually work? You go, you develop relationships with farmers and you get them to download foodshed.io's app? Um, really the way that it works is we got to get a buyer first. Okay. A big, a big buyer that will help us to go ahead of the season to try to help people decide what they want to grow. Mm -hmm. And if we can do that, then the app is like the technology is important, but you know, really good technology is something that you don't notice is there and that is helpful. And so the good news about what we're doing is um, we generally find you if you're in the food shed, so to speak, and we have a big order and we're trying to fill it and we go to you and we try to make your life easier and figuring out how you can plan your season, how we can figure out how to get it in the town. Mm -hmm. And yes, there may be an app that you have to download in order to do that, but we won't bother you with that stuff until it's time. Okay, so you go to like the Kroger's, the big retailers, is it primarily retailers? Yeah. Okay, so you go to them and you're like, this is our idea, we're gonna help you get more local food into your, into your um, markets. Mm -hmm. Um, and then you source the sort of, you go to the different farmers and yeah. you set up that relationship. Yeah. And, you know, we're really happy that we've had a lot of really good farms to work with to begin with to do a lot of these pilots we've done. And they've been successful. And they paved the way for the other people to have an easier time of it. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, as we grow, we're going to have to still need some other farms in different areas of the country as it happens. And then, uh, you know, hopefully they'll be inspired by it. But, um, we really, we don't want to charge the farmers anything. Um, and we are trying to figure out in every way that we can, why hasn't this happened yet? And yeah, well, okay. So, um, where do you operate? Should have probably started with that. Like, you know, where did the 
yeah. company start and where are you kind of expanding to? We started in New York City, which I have to say, I'm not saying it in anything bad about other areas, but uh, the imagination here for agriculture um, is really present. And I think people here are trying to figure out how to do it in an urban area. That's definitely true. But, you know, and it's not that we're all going to live in urban areas, but... We kind of are. I mean, we're already... The mass, vast majority of people live in urban areas. That's true. Like 80% or something. Yeah. So if you think about the future of how a lot of these things could work, there's probably going to be a lot of farming that's urban um, that is closer to people and that makes... Um, you know, some of this stuff easier. But, um, you know, I, I talked to farmers about this. Um, we still need the farmers that are growing things in the ground. There are obviously things that we can't grow uh, vertically yet and, uh, and maybe not for a while. So yeah. we really want to make sure that farmers that are growing things in the ground are growing and feel included and that if there is new technology that's available it's considered of their challenges because that's a present need yeah um, so okay so you started in the new york city area um sourcing mm-hmm. local farmers what was the major retailer that you worked with here we didn't work with retailers here um to get our app built which i think was helpful we worked with restaurants and it was just one of these things where and i don't know how many people have worked on tech projects it really is a good idea when you're doing these kinds of things to um, get it right, <laughs> you know. And I know that that's like, such a good idea. There's something called Facebook out there. They want to move fast and break things. They break. They broke some stuff. So yeah, they still are breaking stuff. They want to be like in charge really of money important now. Stuff. Yeah. Oh, um, that's terrifying to me. So by the way, that that's an interesting approach. And honestly, maybe that's a good one for their investors or something. This, we think, is a little bit different. Yeah, this is, I feel like there's more, I don't know, more at stake. There's, uh, I don't know if I can say there's more at stake, but, you know, this is like our food system, right? And and People will get sick. It'll be like a little bit more present. You could be mentally ill. That's definitely an illness. But, you know, if you're turning blue or, you know, whatever it is, you want the food system to be safe. So there's some other additional things. But I think in general, uh, in terms of building a piece of technology, it may be a good idea to work with a few places first. Make sure you're getting it right. Pilot There's a little mm-hmm. chicken or egg problem there, to use a farming analogy. And uh, <laughs> we we basically got something to the point, it's called a minimum viable product, where then we could go to the retailers in the world and say, look, we have something. You could see it worked in this context. Now you have to take a leap of faith to give us a pilot project that it could work in your context. So then we were able to do that. And then now we're basically, um, we're working with a place I'll, you know, I don't know if we're supposed to announce it, but it's a grocery chain called Schnucks. Oh, I know Schnucks. I was born in St. Louis. Yeah, everybody was born in St. Louis or knows somebody <laughs> from there, it turns out. Everyone's born in St. No, I'm special. <laughs> yeah, they are um, a great place to work with. They're still family run. Um, and they're big enough to be serious. So uh, How many stores do they have? And it's mostly in the in Missouri, right, or Midwest. There are five states. Uh, they're in Illinois, Indiana, Wisconsin, Iowa, and uh, Missouri, and they have 110 now, I think. Um, and they buy a lot of produce, so it's a it's a really great place to work with. And um, the fact that we're able to do it with a place that's mainstream means something to me, at least, because right. I think it's it's not it's like a Whole Foods. It's like a yeah. no, quote unquote normal. Mm-hmm. It's a grocery store. 
Absolutely. Okay, so you so that's really um, that's really exciting. We're excited. Yeah. A lot of work to do, but yeah. Um, is there any particular product that you started with? Um, we've had a lot go through there. Um, the one we started with, though, was this hydroponic butter lettuce uh, that was grown in Sykeston, Missouri. And it was a good product to start with in the sense that it was very shelf-stable. And it was like, you know, you just want to show up a place like that that you can do things on a regular basis. And so... We were able to do that. It's something that, like, they could grow year-round so we could keep doing it. And mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I think that that's been good. Um, we definitely – it is not necessarily something, especially in that market, that people come to the store to buy. Yeah. I, I happen to love it. I eat it like potato chips but uh, instead of potato chips. But other things are – It's so like, healthy of you. I mean, I, it tastes better than potato chips mm -hmm. if you guys, if anybody out there has the possibility of getting this stuff. But, you know, I think that uh, off the top of my head in that market, I think onions are a big mover. We want to definitely get into the onion business. Uh, tomatoes, obviously, everybody always asks us about those. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of things that can grow in that area and in other areas of the country, especially with extended seasons where most of the year you could get something. Yeah. Especially with global warming, we're going to be able, we might be able to have lemons and avocados in, you know, the New York area soon. Yeah. I mean, I guess so. Uh, the, Ho the, hopefully not. I'm being yeah. super, you know, I don't know, <laughs> pessimistic or snarky. If it happens slowly, then that might be okay. <laughs> if it happens fast, then I don't know if you get avocados uh, in I don't this area. It, yeah. but, um, I hope it doesn't happen. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Um, and so do you mostly work with, um, I mean, it sounds like you mostly work with uh, produce, like produce farmers. Um, yeah. Is there going to be any expansion to other types of foods? Well, with Liz's experience in cheese, cheese. and dairy, that's an obvious one. But, um, you know, and we get, we get people calling us all the time and there are people who want us to move things for them. We just want to like, get this right. And, uh, you know, if we, if we, if we scale too fast, then this thing wouldn't work out. And that would be sad because this is another one that didn't get it forward. So we just want to do it right. And I think if we get all the cold chain working and everybody's trucks are moving in the right ways, mm -hmm. we can also get to meet everybody if you want that. And I know some people out there probably have different opinions about all of that stuff, but um, there are also still small producers in that area, medium size, that are doing great work. Yeah. But it'd be nice if they had easier access to the market. Definitely. And then one one thing that I was wondering about, okay, so you go, so retailers, I'm just like really um, have tons of questions about how this actually, you know, how it works and how the innovation you bring to this, um, this area of our food system. So you, the retailer is like, okay, I want, a lot of bib lettuce from, you know, locally grown, you f find the farmers who are able to um, produce for you. And then what happens? Do they like, how is it aggregated or is it aggregated? Is it going individually from the, from the farmers to the grocery stores or their distribution centers? Or um, how does, how do their products get from them to the grocery store? Um, in, mo in most cases, uh, and we're not up to the volumes yet, but by next summer, we will have um, essentially, um, you know, like a big rig that comes to one of these hub farms 
and it's filled with things. What's a hub? What do you mean by hub farm? A hub farm is a place that is um, hopefully centrally located that has a cold storage facility of some kind and smaller farms in that area that are hopefully one to two hours away converge on that area so that it's collected there and aggregated. And then when a big truck comes out of there into the city, it's uh, loaded with all of that stuff in the right places. So the farmers have to drive their stuff to you? Uh, They would have to drive it to a hub farm that is generally a farm that somebody owns. We don't own it. And they are either helping us or they already have kind of a business like this. There are aggregators that are out there. Um, As much as possible, we try to use what's there and try to make it happen better. Uh, That's what we're good at. Okay. So they, okay. So they have to get their product to the hub farm. And then are you involved in any of that in terms of the actual physical transportation or yeah, logistics? Well, if you don't own a cold truck and uh, we may help them to figure out a way to get like a cold, uh, cold bot going in something they have. Um, but we're helping to coordinate all of this from these smaller farms to these bigger ones. Some okay. of the farms that are bigger that we work with, they can handle all of the, there may be enough volume where it all fits in their truck and it's full. But for the most part, a lot of these trucks are going in empty. And, you know, most, uh, if you see a grocery truck on the road, if it's not going, uh, to the grocery store, it's generally empty on the way back. Yeah. So that can be filled up with stuff, right? Yeah, that's a waste. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take a really quick commercial break, but when we get back, um, we are going to learn a little bit more about how your technology um, is powered, so to speak. Stay okay. tuned. <laughs> This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Join Heritage Radio Network on Monday, November 11th for a raucous feast to toast a decade of food radio. Our 10th anniversary Bacchanal is a rare gathering of your favorite chefs, mixologists, storytellers, thought leaders, and culinary masterminds. We'll salute the inductees of the newly minted HRN Hall of Fame, who embody our mission to further equity, sustainability, and deliciousness. 
Join us to explore the beautiful Palm House and Yellow Magnolia Cafe at the Brooklyn Botanic Garden, where you'll taste and imbibe to your heart's content. And bid on once-in-a-lifetime experiences and tasty gifts for any budget at our silent auction. Join the party. Tickets are available now at heritageradionetwork.org slash gala. And we're back on Eating Matters, where today I'm speaking with Dan Beckman, a CEO and co-founder of Foodshed.io. Okay, so before the break, I said we're going to talk about how this is kind of enabled, um, you know, this, this your app. Um, and one of the things that differentiates you is the use of... Um, a blockchain. And, you know, I, people come up to me in airports. I don't even know who they are. And they're like, what is this? <laughs> and I was like, what is this? I'm a completely anonymous person. But um, You're you know, famous. <laughs> there was a lot of hype around this in terms of cryptocurrency. Yeah. And I think that most of that was a tax evasion scheme. <laughs> and uh, that's not what blockchain is necessarily intended for. What, uh, in is, general what is blockchain? It's a super basic question, but I still, you know. Um, it's just like another new programming idea and language that's out there. Uh, the theory of it, which is a practice of it as well, is that copies of the whole history of a document or something is on all these different computers in a network. So if you want to access our information, you have to show me the entire history of what has happened to that information, and then I'll let you see it because they have to match. And that is a very complicated um, thing to be able to figure out. All right, so can you give an example? Well, um, you know- Just in general. I think that the most widely uh, known application is that when people are trying, there's Bitcoins. And so people were mining Bitcoins that were given these individual numbers and it took time through these math equations with computers in order to find these unique coins. And then they stopped issuing coins essentially. And I'm still probably confusing some people, but essentially in order to trade that coin, to someone that you don't know, you have to be able to show the entire history, and this is all digital, so you don't have to like cram for this for homework, mm-hmm. in order to be able to exchange it. The person you've never met before has to have a match. Now, why is this profound for logistics? Logistics seems to be a natural place where this could be helpful. Mm-hmm. Uh, it isn't helpful in every case, and uh, there's been some people that have tried to put it into everything. Uh, I've seen people try to do it with like, uh, <laughs> uh, I'm not gonna get into some of these crazy things that people, I, I talked to some nurses that were thinking about doing like, is this the right patient blockchain style? I, I don't even know. It how was you kind that. of one of these things where, and I don't, I'm worried that some people consider us to be this way where, there was a flurry of investment and activity around blockchain last year, basically. And so you just said you were blockchain and then you thought that you got money in order to work on it. In our case, in the logistics space, the reason why it may be a natural thing is you constantly have the exchange of goods. So let's say that we have apples. Mm -hmm. Those apples are being handed off to people that don't know each other. It could be a different truck. It could be a different company. It could be different farms. And so... Uh, if they all have different systems, that slows things down. So systems we don't want being... that. A system could be a notebook where you write down, this is what I just saw. Okay. It could be um, a 
Excel spreadsheet. It could be a couple of emails. Um, I have seen all sorts of things, especially you throw Mennonite farmers in there and you know, people are using different kinds of technology in order to verify that this is the right amount, this is where it came from, uh, that this is safe. Mm -hmm. And so blockchain for us means, uh, and uh, you know, we're working on it and we're part of the community of people doing this. It's good for if Walmart decides, which they say that they've done, that their, all of their farms have to be on a blockchain, a single chain. Walmart said that? Yes. Not, there's different categories of farms that have to be, or they're working towards it with IBM, can read about it. Um, we don't work with Walmart right now, so this isn't something we need to do tomorrow. But basically, we don't want the farmers that we are working with to ha be locked out again. If there's a new system of logistics, we want it to be easy for them to join it. And the reason why blockchain is a good candidate is that it could be easy for us to join that chain and they would trust everything that happened before. Um, they'd trust that all the entries were correct and it would be just easy to look back at the history. Well, so why would that benefit? I can understand how that would benefit the consumer, the end user to be able to say like, I know exactly, totally transparent. The supply chain is totally transparent so I can trust that, you know, my food was safe or delivered. You know, it's not been sitting around for a long time, which it probably has been, but mm -hmm. um, but like, how does that benefit the farmers, which is where it originated? Um, there's a few ways that it benefits them, and I like kind of the general region of your question because I I refer to a lot of the technology that's out there for traceability as uh, essentially farmer surveillance, and I think farmers get that that might be what's going on on some level. Uh, well-intended people that may not have thought through the implications of what happens when you surveil everything that happens on a farm. Mm -hmm. But to get to the answering your question part, um, blockchain could could help farmers in the following ways. So with our company and what we're doing, all of these farms that are not financially related to each other, you could have a berry farm, you could have a corn farmer and a lettuce farm in the same truck. If there's a contamination in just the lettuce, let's say, sorry to pick on lettuce, um, well, you we, already said that a particular kind of lettuce was better than potato chips, so I feel like you're good. Okay, it's, it's even <laughs> Steven on that. Yeah. So if something happens where we, you have a recall or whatever, you don't want everybody else's stuff to get thrown out. Right. You want to be able to quickly go to the store that is buying it and say, here's everything that happened, here's all the people, here's every place that it's been, and this is the place that the problem is at. And you also want to be sure, because on our point of view, we don't want to have people get sick. So um, that is a way where if we have these complicated supply chains that you are protected in a sense if you don't have a contamination problem because it sucks to have to throw out your stuff when it's perfectly good. Right. And this happens in large food chains, obviously. We had the romaine lettuce issue. That wasn't all the romaine lettuce and all that had to be wasted. They weren't able to quickly find where it was. Yeah. It, and then it was. A ton was wasted. Yeah. With any kind of contamination issue. And it hurt romaine lettuce. There's probably still some people who are not buying it for whatever reason. So there's that. That is one way that it benefits you as a farmer. The other way it could, if you have easy access to it and you don't need a computer programmer to have access to it, which is basically the way it is now, is if you want to sell to Walmart for some reason or you want to sell to Kroger or some other place, if they're all on that system, then it's easy. Uh, because? Because you have a part of a blockchain that you can use and you can show, like, 
it's a, basically like an interstate highway system, and you have an on-ramp then in order to be able to sell that way. They can they can easily identify you? They can find you? Yeah, it's all standard, and it's an easy way in order to do it. And I don't, some farmers may still not like that, but, you know, that's an opportunity. Right. So that isn't today. <laughs> yeah. So we're watching it. We don't need it with what we're doing right now. And I'm just being clear about that. But we would be stupid as a tech company to not be thoroughly investigating it and testing this sort of thing. It would be like building a new house without USB plugs. Right. I mean, I'm sure someone's doing it, but like, come on, everybody, like, got to charge <laughs> like, my iPhone somewhere kind of or whatever. A, kind of a bad idea. Um, so, like, I, you know, farmers have a lot to deal with on a daily basis. Yeah. Um, how, and, and I feel like adding kind of another layer of maybe complexity or asking them to change or innovate in some way um, might be a hard lift, at least at first. So did you experience kind of initial pushback to just the, like the idea of your company and how did you navigate that? Well, you know, um, I have a preference for how I do all of this sort of thing. And the consumer, we don't overwhelm them with all sorts of stuff. We just try to replace the onions they have there with stuff that's good and regenerative. In the case of the farmer, we don't, if we ask them to do a lot of things, we recognize they don't have time to do them. So it has to be part of the way their business works. They have to get paid to do it. It has to be some way that they, hopefully, actually, it removes some sort of uh, pain point, as you may call it, uh, from their lives, which is selling your food. Mm -hmm. That's kind of annoying. So if it's easy to give them a contract and to help them with these things, help them to get GAP certified, um, if there's a way that we can help them, then they want us to be there. If I go there and I'm like, this is whiz-bang technology and you just got to love it and everybody loves tech, that worked for <laughs> around 20 years somewhere. And I think we all fell for it with social media. Now everybody's kind of like, is this thought through it all? And if it isn't, then it kind of naturally works out where they don't have time for something that doesn't provide them a benefit. So I, I've not had issues talking to farmers um, and getting them interested when I'm saying we'd like to buy this from you. Um, they yeah. have to agree with the price. Yeah. And then in order to have us buy it, they always Which have I'm to assuming is fair. Yeah. I mean, we, we try, I mean, right. as best as we can to get them the most that we can for it. And we try to get them as much consistency as we can and advance notice sometimes before the season, which is ideal. So they can plant, plant things ahead of time. Yeah. Um, so we try to get them all of that um, and, and, and actually try to help them. And no, people generally are welcoming of that sort of thing. I am. So you are Fujet.io. Foodshed.io is an example of a company where it's like, it's, it's, it's tech, right? It's tech and logistics. It's tech in the sense that you're using blockchain. It's an app, you know, all of that. Um, and it's being used for a very specific and, you know, to solve for an issue that, in my opinion, you know, is like an area that's sorely needed and kind of needs to be moved into the, you know, a more modernized space. But I'm wondering if you're you know, in your kind of perspective, do you see a certain aspect of like the food system where there's just throwing, you know, it's like investors, people just throwing tons of money at, you know, to solve an issue where it's like tech is not going to solve that. You do um, not need tech for this. 
I'm surprised about, and I, I don't want to pick on certain things because I feel like hopefully people are learning something from the vast amount of investment that has gone into some mega farms that are out there that are definitely not family farms, and you could call them factory farms, everybody. Um, they may be really pushing the future of how food is going to work in a situation where resources are limited. So I hope that's going in the right direction. But the amount of money some of these things are getting, how are they ever going to pay that back with lettuce? Um, so that is something I don't understand. Uh, maybe some people think it's a real estate play. Um, well, like maybe, what's an example of something you're thinking of? Well, I don't want to pick on the on a lot of the places around here that have gotten a lot of this money. I wish them well. I just maybe they maybe they don't have to explain to me, but I don't understand how that stuff ever gets paid back. I see a lot of these places going out of business. Yeah. Now, in my where I'm sitting, I'm trying to help in the ground farmers and places like that work together and some of the hydro and um, even aquaponics farms that are um, smaller in some cases that are, do not have as much investment. I want them to be part of this world too and we're trying to help them. And so um, we are not washed with investment. We will take investment from places and I think that there's a lot that we can do with it. But trying to rationalize the marketplace at all for how this produce works when you still have produce terminals that basically mirror like you know, turn of like BC era <laughs> marketplaces. Yeah. Um, I think it's a good investment to try to figure out a way to make that work a little bit better. If you care about food waste, if you care about having farms that are doing it the right way, uh, have enough money to keep doing it that way and maybe even do it better. Um, one thing that I think is a well-intended thing in this industry is like it, you ratchet up traceability all the way and you know when somebody planted it you know what seeds they use and you know every all their magic potions if you compete have farms compete on that basis of water usage and chemical whatever it is and you don't fund how they will be better at it mm -hmm. then you're just going to put more of these farms out of business that we need that are trying their best to do it and so that's something i talked to a lot of people are very interested in traceability right now we need to make sure that these farms are stable and that they're in a position where they can actually do these kinds of things when they're found out um, or else it, this will really have a bad effect um, over, you know, tracing them right now. And I don't think any of these farms have any opposition to doing things in a way that's healthy, uh, that food safety is there and that there's inspections and things. We've never had any objections to that. But something that I'm aware of when I'm talking to these places, and I actually try to educate them on this, I'm like, don't just have somebody come here and look at everything that you're doing for some reason. Right. You know, right. be careful with it. This stuff is important to you. And, you know, it could be even something like how much how many uh, boxes of tomatoes do you have left? If people know that kind of stuff, they can negotiate with you in a way that and, and farmers have an instinct to this. They know it. They're nice people. I've not met anybody who hasn't been nice about this. But, you know, uh, if you have people from like the Internet ad world that come and apply it to <laughs> agriculture, that's that's not the right way to think about it. I think that the Internet ad space went bad and I don't think that it I don't think it's going to work in the agriculture space. So that is a growing small kind of area where there is some investment that is being made that I just feel like the timing isn't right for something like that. In Let's, terms of like radical transparency. 
radical transparency wouldn't necessarily show everybody that um you know their food is unsafe because we're all eating three times a day and we're all going to eat more tomorrow mm -hmm. and most of us won't get sick from it and i know there could be cumulative effects i appreciate all these things right but what you're giving up is that the big farms can handle that well right they these smaller the farms if you if you're criticizing them on water usage let's right. say um who has the money to really do a good job on that that would be more welcoming of everybody seeing it um these major factory farms that monocrop and do all sorts of things yes you could judge them on some other things and uh you know that's a good way to get in the transparency but if you want innovation in food if you want flavor if you want more varieties than one kind of banana <laughs> got a lot of apples out there but if you want a lot of different varieties of things that make your world an exciting place to eat we need these independent farms to be able to be stable first and, you know, it may sound weird that I'm talking about it this way because we obviously are a tech company and we want people to have some transparency in their food, no doubt. But let's start first with let's make sure these places are going to stay open, grow and are stable. And if you want to do something on water and you want to do something on regenerative, bring some funding with it and then surveil these farms. They are cool with <laughs> how they can be better at it. Yeah. They're worried about. Uh, what if I can't afford to fix this sort of thing? Right. And that seems to me, I mean, no, no VC that I've ever heard of is going to be like, yeah, that's totally a good investment from a financial perspective. I mean, mm -hmm. from like a humanity and, you know, like to help ensure the future of our food system that we're going to have food. Yes. Less a long-term vision. But um, it seems like to me that's really where government needs to step in and help. Um, sure, all sorts of things out there. I mean, here's the thing. We have a business and we are for profit and I think we have a good opportunity here. Um, yeah, but in terms of like the investment to help farmers modernize, because um, you know, where, will, where else will that come from? And to, to like a reliable source also. We're starting by seeing what happens when we give them a contract before the season starts. Let's, let's see what comes of that sort of thing. Yeah. And then they can have have a contract that stabilizes their farm and then the rest of the land i haven't met a farmer that doesn't have some extra land that can be speculative like they've been doing with everything you haven't and met so, a farmer that has extra land that sounds yeah. so surprising to me since well, most I mean, farmers like rent land it depends on it depends on where you're doing it or whatever but i think every there are definitely some examples especially in hydroponic areas where they don't have more space i respect that mm -hmm. but I don't know where they get it from. Maybe they work with their neighbors or whatever. But if there's an order there and they like it, they figure out a way to grow it somewhere if it's yeah. around. It's normally an issue of we're just guessing about whether or not this stuff is going to get bought. And so when you're in that kind of a situation, you're also not necessarily in the best negotiating position. Right. And it rains when the farmer's market happens. Yeah. <laughs> you don't sell out all of these inefficiencies. If we can work on those first please bother your congressman or whatever you want to do with that. Please keep doing that. Yeah. But at the same time, we can keep trying this method and uh, maybe we'll get them more stable. And that leaky hose, let's face it, what is part of these water things? Um, we can maybe fix that if they're a more stable farm and a stable business all around. You know, it's just uh, like anything in life, the more stability that you're able to have, the more that you can sit and think about things. You're not constantly freaking out, spending weeks at wondering how do we get this stuff to the store now that we have a 
order at the last minute. Right. <laughs> that that you can then think about like how do I reduce water usage because I don't want to use too much water you because that's bad. Literally just described what it's like to work at a small startup. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, <laughs> seriously. Uh, I'm gonna go no, back seriously. to that in a few minutes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you know you know as well. Um, all right. Well, we're gonna we're gonna have to leave it there. The the last thing I want to ask is where can. Um, where can our listeners go to learn more about and su continue to support your work? Um, oh, that's a good question. You know, we keep a low profile. Um, we want people to know what we're doing, but at the same time, it's like... Well, not after this show, because of my international audience. <laughs> I think everyone here has enough to be dangerous right now. I don't know if there's even anything else to know about what we're doing. We've been that's very <laughs> thorough here. Well, thank you. Well, I mean, this has been... I've really enjoyed our conversation. I have such, I'm such a huge fan of what you're doing and I cannot wait to see um, what the future holds for you. Yeah. And people can reach out to me, dan at foodshed.io. We do have a website that we don't update, but <laughs> you can reach out to me and I, I like hearing from people and I'll respond. That's um, amazing. Dan, thanks, thank thanks you for listening to the end of the episode. <laughs> thank you so much for coming on. Okay, um, I want to give a big thanks before we wrap up to um, our uh, engineer, Cheat Paul. Show music is by Tim Archer. The show is produced with help from the fabulous and talented um, Jessica Duncan and Julia Devon. Um, I'm Jenna Liute, and thank you for listening. Eating Matters is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right-hand side of our homepage. Thanks for listening.